There's a particular passage of scripture that I was planning to preach on and the events of the week have come and gone and I found no reason in those events to change the topic that I felt like God had given me. But the text is very lengthy. In fact, it's like the longest particular story in the book of Acts and one of the longer stories found in the scripture other than the words of Jesus at a few key points. It's a story of what we call the first martyr, Stephen, although we all know he was really the second martyr, right? The first martyr is named Jesus, and he walked this earth as we all walk it. But the, second, the first martyr, a human martyr, fully human and not divine, would be this man called Stephen. Now, as I told the children, in the end of chapter 6, you find the church growing in large numbers as the church has taken certain steps to organize itself better, had laid hands upon those beyond the apostles who would be ordained as deacons in the church and who were to take care of the needs of the people as the community continued to gather and to share all things in common. And I'm going to preach about that actually next Sunday. But as the story goes on, it talks about Stephen more and more until it gets to the end and it says um, this about, the, about Stephen. Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But people came to challenge him. But because of his grace and because of the presence of the Spirit in such a powerful way, they were unable to argue effectively against him. So in the face of not being able to do anything with this guy who was talking about Jesus, they did the only thing they thought was left for them to do as good, faithful people of Israel, leaders of the congregation of Israel, And that was that they secretly induced other men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemously against Moses and against God. They induced people. They encouraged people to speak ill about him. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And then they reiterated these crimes that he supposedly had committed. And then Stephen fixed his gaze upon them. And all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So in the midst of the gossiping, the lying, and the not truth-telling, in the midst of the misunderstandings, in the midst of not being willing to understand anything new. In the face of all of this, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, filled the people with anger because they were so terrified that their church was threatened. But when they looked at him, even those who were there to do something with him, his face appeared like the face of an angel. And then comes a long, long sermon. This is one of those sermons that you can't have on Communion Sunday. This is one of those stories that takes a long time. Because you see, Stephen is going to explain to them why the things he's been saying are biblical and they should know them. He's going to explain to them how the process, if you will, of God's revelation that he began so long ago in Father Abraham was being continued even today in these new apostles. But I know this is going to surprise you. First Church Jerusalem wasn't about to have a church remake anytime soon. Because they were firm in their traditions. They were firm in their beliefs. 
And they were firm that this man was turning people away from the temple as a central and only place where God lived and toward a God who could be anywhere at any time. And they were bent out of shape. And so they decided to give him a chance to redeem himself or they hoped, quite frankly, to hang himself. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. You'll be thankful for that. Something like 53 verses. But I'm going to give you Doug's summary Bible version. You can fill in the blanks later. But all of these truths, starting with Abraham, who was willing to pick up his goods and his family and leave at God's command, not knowing where he was really going, not knowing what he would face there, but he took his people with him, and at the word of God, got up and left and ended up in Haran. And this is the beginning of an obedient person, Abraham. The reason God chose Abraham, Abram and he became Abraham was because of his faith and obedience to what God called him to do. He didn't have to see the road clearly in front of him. He didn't have to have all of the answers. What he, all he needed was a call from God that was clear to him who said, go, and he went. I'm sure as he was going, can you imagine the conversation? We're going, where? You don't know. You're leading us to a place you don't know where it is because God told you to? Come on, Abram. What are you thinking? Well, eventually he tells them, well, I had this vision, too, you might want to know about. You know, we're going to be, a, we're going to be as numerous as the stars, as plentiful as the sands on the, of the sea. We're going to become a great and mighty nation. And they looked at him and said, Abram, you don't even have any children. You're an old man. And your wife is an old woman. How's that going to be? Don't know. That's what God said. And we're on the way and you need to get in line. I'm sure at some point Moses had to say, get in line. I'm sure he didn't have to say that to his wife, of course. He couldn't need to say it to his children because he didn't have any But he might have had to say it to several of the family, the the outer relatives, you know. Come on, y'all. God called us to leave. And so he did. And to top it all off, he had a son. But before he could begin to see the numerous things that God was planning to do, he died. Without ever seeing everything happen that he thought would happen. But you know, there's a begatting going on here. The children of, of our forefathers of the Christian faith and of the Jewish faith were there. And the patriarchs began to be formed. Out of Jacob came Joseph. And Joseph, another person cited for his being. He was a person who was full of grace. People just liked Joseph as long as they weren't his brother's who disliked him. You know the story. You know, they disliked him so much that they beat him, they threw him in a hole and expected him to die. But guess what? He didn't. And he was plucked and thrown in jail when he got to where he was going because he'd been sold into slavery. But he was made slavery to the king of Egypt. And Moses said about being a good servant, being a good prisoner. And when the king needed advice, he sent it to him. And lo and behold, the king brought him up. And the next thing you know... A few years later, he's the second in command of all of Egypt. Even though his brothers meant to take his life, God meant to put him in charge so that he could actually save his brothers 
when the famine came and there was nothing to eat where they lived. Could he see that at the time it was happening? No. But Joseph was full of grace. Beauty is another way to translate the word they're using in that story. Joseph was just a beautiful human. Some see in him a prefiguration of the coming of Jesus. And I think there are reasons to to see that in him. He has a unique life. And in the end, he forgave his brothers. Because he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And indeed, the whole nation was saved because they all came forward and were fed during times of famine. But unfortunately, in the world in which they lived... They did such a good job of becoming like the sands around the sea that the king looked at them and realized after Joseph died, a new king came. He said, wow, they're getting to be too many of these slaves. You know, there's a lot more of them than us. We've got to do something about that. So he began a plan of extermination. And that's how baby Jesus ended up being raised in Pharaoh's court. I'll get rid of all those Jewish people. And God said, well, you're going to kill a lot of babies but I'm going to put one in your own house so you're not even going to know it. God is so much smarter than we are. Thank God. Thank you, God, that you're smarter than... You want me to call your name? No? Okay, I won't call your name then. God is so much smarter than us. His plans are so much larger than us. They're so much bigger than we could ever understand. I'm going to come back to that at the end of this story on Stephen. And so... Moses grows up in the king's court with all the benefits, all the privileges, all the wealth, and everything else. But along the way, one day, he decides to go out and see his kinfolks when he becomes aware that he's really not the king's child. He's really born of a mother and raised by a mother in his court secretly. So he wants to go see his people, and he sees how they're being mistreated. And his anger arises in him, and he takes the life of an Egyptian who was mistreating and beating a fellow relative. And then he takes off, thinking he's going to leave all that behind. Goes off to the farthest mountain he could move to. He moved to Dunaway Church. That's in a little town in Kentucky called, wasn't it called Trap? Is that right? Trap, Kentucky. Let me tell you something. That's not the end of the world, but it's pretty easy to see the end from there. That's where we went when we left Texas. We ended up in Trap, Kentucky. You know what we found in Trap, Kentucky, though? There were good people there, loving people in that small town, people who had been in that 50-member church a long time. And they embraced us. They couldn't embrace us like Texans because they were Kentuckians. They didn't really understand how to do that thing. And they couldn't understand me when I said horse. They thought I was saying a horse or something. They didn't understand. And I couldn't figure out why they couldn't understand. I don't know. They didn't understand Texan. But we went there because that's where God put us. And here in this place... Where Moses was raising sheep, suddenly God appeared to him, and he tells the story. We all know about the burning bush, and we all know what happened. Moses goes back, takes his people through a miraculous series of miracles, getting them free from the Egyptian tyranny. Just miracle after miracle after miracle. Just unbelievable. And then they wouldn't enter the land God told them to, this disobedient people. They started their wilderness journey without knowing it. They'd hardly gotten out of the driveway when they began to say, Man, we don't have enough water. We don't have enough food. It's hot out here. Are you bringing us out here for us to die, Moses? 
And Moses goes, oh, my goodness, you stiff-necked people. And he'd go and pray, God, God, don't strike them all dead. Because he thought God was surely thinking that. And actually, Scripture say God was toying with the idea. Just starting all over again. But Moses talked him out of it in prayer, and he didn't do it. But they had to wander 40 years because they wouldn't go into the promised land like he told them to. So they had to wander 40 years until the whole generation died off before they came back in. You see how Stephen is taking this carefully down the road with all these points of the Israelite history? And in doing so, he is trying to teach them three things that he's sneaking in here in the midst of the history. First of all, he was citing truth that they would accept in such a way that it would end up being a condemnation of the disobedience of Israel. He was doing so in such a word that he was contrasting their past to the current reality of Israel. This is who we were supposed to be, and this is who we've become. Our main desire here is to keep things as they were. We don't want a new prophet. We don't want a new savior. This is not the one we wanted. We don't believe this is the one. And so he was rejected. And Stephen is just laying it right there in front of them. Your answer came and you killed him. Then he went to the temple. And can you imagine a people growing up in all that they've been through, turning out over the centuries to love the temple more than the one who was supposed to dwell there? Unbelievable, right? Aren't we glad that we churches are so strong? I mean, Rotary clubs sometimes split up because they changed the color of carpet. Maybe, that's, maybe it wasn't a rotary club. Maybe it was a church I actually served. Churches split up because people on one side of the aisle want more school taxes and people on the other don't want any more taxes. Oh, I serve that church too. People let their church die their temple where God's supposed to dwell because they forget to tell anybody that Jesus loves them too. And yes, I served there too. Five of the longest years of Sally's life. Wasn't too good for Sally and Sarah and Doug. And let's see, Rachel, had she made it on the scene, and so she was too little to know it. But good things came out of being in that place. But you see, disobedience is something that seems to be inherent in people's minds. I've told you the story already, but it's just such a simple disobedience. This came by temptation for me. What is this? It's an exerciser. Oh, you can't break it, so you can play with it. Bam, shut the door. Family's in the other room. Put that exerciser over the toe of my foot. And with all four foot nine of me, or whatever I was then, I pulled and I pulled and I put, I can break it. I'll show mama. And then it slipped off my toe. <laughs> what I couldn't see, I couldn't see greater because it popped me right in the eye. And I ended up in the hospital with blood on my eye. And they thought I had a chance of losing my eye. And in that semi-darkness, I lay there thinking, stupid, stupid, you're really stupid. <laughs> Hard-headed and stupid. 
Temptation, we can almost resist anything but temptation. We can almost resist anything but what we want. Churches sometimes forget that God dwells everywhere where people are, not just in churches. And we need to take that literally. And we need to remember that some people are worshiping on their own. It's not the best way to worship, but they are doing it. Not everybody who's not in church is not a Christian. That doesn't mean they don't need to come to church, but it does mean that God doesn't live just here. God lives everywhere where people are entertaining his presence. They just couldn't believe that God was anywhere but the temple. And Stephen went on to explain to them in this historical lesson that they had crucified Jesus following the same pattern of rejecting and persecuting the prophets and the leaders God had sent them. And he did it all through history. This Abraham, the man of the instant following ability, the man of the adventurous spirit who took out as a true man of faith, ready to follow God wherever God took him, not even knowing where that was, but believing that what God had told him was true, became a man of hope, even though what he was looking for never happened. He still believed in the promise. That's important to us today because many of you have been praying about things lately and regularly, things that you wanted to become true or not to become true. We've been praying for things to happen in our church that we've not seen happen. You may have been praying about it in your own life, something you really believe and hold on to that is important to you and to God. And yet still, though you pray and you pray and you pray, it doesn't seem like the prayer is coming true. And sometimes we think that means it's not. But it may be it's going to come in a lot later time than you think. It may mean that it's going to come in something of a different way than what you've been praying about. But it doesn't mean that it's not going to come true. It doesn't mean God has left you. It means that the way you're praying is not in the whole entire picture of God's plan. We will never understand all of that, but we keep praying nonetheless. And we still have hope. It's like saying Jesus is going to return. And people say, yeah, well, I've been saying that for nearly 2,000 years. Yeah, well, if he comes tomorrow, it'll be too late for you, buddy. Just because he hasn't showed up yet doesn't mean he's not coming. The scriptures say he's coming. How much that's said in scripture has not become true other than that? Duh. Not believing he's going to come would be kind of silly with all the evidence that we have in history that God will return to this earth. You say, well, how can that really be? Come on, Doug. You don't really believe that literally. Um, Well, yeah, I kind of do. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I hope it happens 30 minutes before I'm planning to die. (laughs) Or 30 years before. I just want to see it. But I don't really want to be with y'all when he comes because I'll know it right up there. I want to be with people who don't believe it. I want to see their faces when he shows up. I can think of a few seminary professors I want to be next to. (laughs) Most of them retired and present company excluded, all that. Because they just can't believe that God would act in such a miraculous way. Well, that's so sad. 
If God's not big, bigger than the puny humans I've known in these 64 years, then I, I, I'm to be pitied because I'm worshiping another human. God is so much bigger than we are, it's not even comparable. And this story goes on and on saying these kind of things until he gets there and says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Wow. That made them so mad they picked up the rocks. Because after all, Sometimes it's just easier to get rid of somebody than it is to put up with what they're saying. And how irritating it is if it's true. (laughs) He died. Stephen did. Asked for their forgiveness while he's dying. And then they got really carried away. We got rid of Stephen. Let's get rid of the rest of these Christians. And so one man standing by his side, Saul. Saul became one of the greatest persecutors in rounding up the Christians. We're going to exterminate them. Well, sounded like a good plan to them. Funny thing happened, though. You want to read the scripture a little farther? And it says, so the Jews who were Christians now, without having a name to say it, followers of Jesus, they dispersed everywhere. And everywhere they dispersed, guess who they told about? They told everybody about Jesus. And so the gospel, instead of being confined right there in Jerusalem where they were having this big battle, was suddenly just broadcast like seed with the wind out there in other communities. And soon the knowledge of Jesus Christ and the following of Jesus was growing rapidly. Oh, we'll kill this person and stop God. Go ahead, fool. You can't stop what God's going to do. You can't stop it. And now we had the church spreading like wildfire. That's the story of their history. Yes, they killed Stephen, and he became a martyr. God bless him for being willing to die for his faith. God bless him that what he was dying for was the gospel of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. Not a particular doctrine, but the reality of the truth of the salvation for all humankind. It's a great story in history. Boy, that gave me a lot of time to preach today. It's kind of a dangerous Sunday for that. I'm going to wind it up now, but I want to do it by talking about things that are going on now. Things we've been praying about. Things particularly about the ruling that came down from the Judicial Council. There are places in the country today where pastors are, in good faith, bemoaning the decline and the loss of our nation. Simply put, I could preach on that every Sunday since I've been alive. I've been watching my nation fall apart for a long time. And if you're a student of history, you know it happens or has happened everywhere people have been united in government. We're, we're 200 years old as a democracy, but we're not immune. It's not one thing that sinks the ship. It's the inside part that sinks the ship. It's not a particular doctrine that doesn't touch at the heart of God and who Jesus Christ is that sinks the ship. It's a failure to believe in Jesus Christ. Nobody gets to heaven unstained by sin. 
Nobody. Maybe the thief on the cross made it because he made the decision right before he died. Otherwise, sin, unintentional and intentional, keeps creeping back into our lives. It's a constant battle. Now, if you came this morning expecting me to preach a sermon about the passing of the judicial council and same-gender relationships and marriages, I know you're going to be a little disappointed today because I'm not going to preach about that directly, but rather indirectly. And I'm going to direct it at those of us who gather here regularly for worship. I want to remind you that when Stephen faced those who were not going to believe him, that he had the face of an angel. Not the face of an angry person. Not the face of a judgmental person. Not the face of one who was calling all of Israel to change everything that minute or else. But rather a young man filled with wisdom and grace. People say, well, preacher, don't you believe in preaching against sin? I do. And if you would like to stand up and testify about your worst one now, I'll preach a sermon on it, 10 minutes long, starting now. Anybody want to volunteer? I don't want your, I don't want your casual sin nobody cares about. I want your biggest sin. The one nobody knows about but you and God. I want the one that's your greatest weakness. That wouldn't be much fun, would it? Not for you. Now, a lot of other people who didn't have your sin, like me, we'd have a big old time. Because after all, it's your sin. I don't feel bad talking about your sin. It's when they start talking about my sin that I might get to squirming in my seat. I want to ask you, as followers of God and Believers in Jesus as the Christ. To not go overboard on the condemnation of those who interpret Scripture in some way different than you do. Think about how small every church would be if we had to agree about everything. Now, do not hear me say that their decision is unimportant. I did not say that. So do not leave here and and say that. If you do, you'll have two sins to worry about. All I'm saying is the church is now on trial again and afresh. And we can either respond to things we disagree disagree with always, whatever the issue is, with grace and the wisdom that we have cast in those limitations because all our understanding is limited. All of our ability to be graceful is limited. And when we're in the situation where people are not really believers anyway and already accusing the church of misbehaving... We don't need to pile on. Piling on in that just pushes them farther from God. For instance, if you come to my office and you share with me your deepest, darkest sin, and maybe I already know it. That probably would worry you a little. But you know, people do talk. That being the case, if you're in my office and the door is closed and people think that you have come to see me just to talk about a program in the church, we're liable to close the door, turn the music up a little louder, and we're liable to say, Brother, what in the blazes are you doing living this way? But I would never say that to you in the middle of your Sunday school class when you had not come to me with that problem, nor would I announce your name and your sin before the congregation. I have people accuse me of preaching directly to them on Sunday, but that's just the word, right? It's hard to preach a sermon about sin and not hit everybody. 
But we love to get specific. And when we get specific, we, we love to be, preach about the sins that we don't have. In the context of what we're living through at this point, don't be a, a it's all over person. You know, they thought they were killing all the Christians too in Jerusalem. And then, meanwhile, it was spreading like wildfire out beyond the circles. Don't get so headstrong about one subject that turns your whole opinion about our nation. We talked about that in a Sunday school class I taught this morning. I get to do that every now and then. And so I was in Denise and Rachel's classes that were combined. And we talked about what they've been studying in Acts. And we talked about the sin. And, of course, we hadn't been gone long before somebody in the class. I won't call her name. I'll try not to even look at her. But... So she said, so what will you do if that happens in our church? And I laughed. I said, God and I are still talking about that. But she really wanted an answer, and so I gave her one a little more like it. But don't pin me down, because I don't know about the moment. If one of you comes forward and wants to join the church and says, my sin is this, and perhaps you are Saul before he became Paul. I'm not going to turn the congregation and say, well, sister so-and-so wants to join the church, but she's really been a hit woman for the last 10 years and has killed 97 people. But thanks be to God, she's ours now. <laughs> and probably I would be the one lying on the ground with uh, her tuck-away gun, you know, pointed at my temple. Because she would not expect me to reveal to everyone something so personal. Do I know what this means for the church? I'll simply share the words of what the bishop said. The church is governed by the church polity, not by the United States laws of government. Nothing has changed in the United Methodist Church, period. You said, but things will change. I don't know that, and quite frankly, I probably have studied that at least more than 99.9% of you. And I promise you, nobody really knows it will be a much debated topic in 2016, in the last of April and May. I'm going to go, but I'm not going to be happy with what I see either way. I'm going to see people who are running down the church because we're judgmental. I'm going to see people who at some point will probably need to have to be removed forcibly by the law. I hate that. I hate it. I've been there before when that's happened. But I also hate those who are not in that camp for some of the ways they respond to the people who need grace and love and understanding. That is the way our God approaches us. Very few people get struck down like Saul does so dramatically that they can have a Pauline conversion. Most of us learn gradually over time. It's kind of like breaking in a new husband. Scott, where are you? Bird song? There he is right back here. He's not the only one new, though, is he, Andy? Got two new young men. I like to, I like to pick on them in pairs because you can't be sure which one I'm talking about. Actually, I'm talking about both of them, and I'm even talking about myself. Your wife is not yet finished with you. <laughs> I know you're thinking, oh, I'm married now. Yeah, you are married now. Let me tell you what that means 42 years later. 
42 years from now, if you're both still alive, you will still be getting disciplined and trained. And a lot of the training you actually need. How often the training comes has to do with two things. Now, I know you're enjoying this illustration, but it's meant for everyone. First thing it has to do with is the wisdom of your wife. When they're young, they're not as wise as when they get older. They try to force break you. Most men don't take well to force breaking, neither do horses or anything else. But that's what is the first inclination, just to tell you, don't you know not to leave your shoes in the floor? I like my shoes in the floor by my dresser, but you should put them up in the closet at night. I plan to wear them tomorrow morning. What's the point? (laughs) Because I want the house to look a certain way. Dirty clothes are the same thing. It takes them a few years to fully break you if you're one of those normal guys. But remember, part of this is the wisdom of the person who's doing the breaking is really important. And the other way, the other thing that's really important is for the guy to say, you know, I could put my shoes in the closet. I don't have to throw my clothes down. I could actually throw them in the basket. It's only two more steps. I can cooperate and be more loving in cooperating. And as soon as she fixes me that perfect meal, I'm going to do just that. (laughs) There's some deceptiveness that also comes into those two main things. Both are true. Don't be the one so filled with wisdom and righteous indignation that you have no love or mercy in training the other person. If you do that, you are not following Christ. You say, that's really strong, preacher. I mean every word of it. You can go in firmness and in love, but you need to have the face of an angel. You can't talk to somebody that you really dislike their lifestyle, but it's like talking to your teenager. You need to have your hands relaxed. Because when you go to preach, a preacher once said, your voice will be much healthier if your hands are relaxed. Because that means your throat is relaxed and you won't be hurting your throat. And sometimes when we get ready to approach a sinner, you know, you know those bad sinners. Not the one from last week, but that other bad sinner. We don't want to go toward them and grab them around the neck with our hands all tensed up and angry. But we want to go to them and invite them to a conversation at a safe place place for them when we are ready in love to share the gospel with them when the church if it ever does gets out of being stuck in its old ways and has the heart of Jesus there is nothing that can stop the church they can kill half of us and we'll multiply back we don't even we're not even half empty now and it's summer when people are traveling we've got work to do yes but look at all the people who believe in Jesus here We don't have to worry about the past except to learn from it so we don't make the same mistakes based upon opinions and interpretations of Scripture that others disagree with us about. I know I'm going to get emails, but you also know I don't read all my emails. This is the last year in my second year, last Sunday in my last second year here. And I'll admit, one of my sins is I don't like emails. 
I don't even like your emails. I try to look at them and see the ones that are really important. But if your email is hiding and it's important, you should star it to do something to make me see this really important. And if I don't answer it quickly, you should, well, you could call the bishop or the DS and they'll say, well, he hadn't been reading them for years. But uh, you could just call me. My phone's always on and it can always be private. But you can send me emails and I do read them. But if it's not really important and the 3,000 of them that are hanging around on my computer, you might get overlooked. Doesn't mean I don't love you because I do. It just means I don't like email. Now I'm going to get letters about that. (laughs) And I read every letter. So there you are. But don't think you know know all that I am saying about a particular sin because you would be wrong. First of all, because I'm not even sure exactly how I believe every interpretation. I've been studying this book a long time. I do know that there's some things said clearly in Scripture. And when things are said clearly in Scripture, I do my best to follow them. And I do my best to call other people to follow them as well. But I try to always do it in grace and with love, the way I'd want to be treated by someone else who's farther down the path than I am. I hope you'll do the same. I want to pray for you now. Lord God, we thank you for this day together. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. And whatever may be going on around us, things that verify that you are ours and we are yours, or things that challenge what we hold near and dear. We want to be loving and graceful with the face of an angel angel just like Stephen. We thank you for Stephen, and we marvel at his bravery, at his courage to die for what he believed and for who he believed in. May we, Lord, have that same courage to be willing to give our lives for our Savior, Jesus Christ. For we never know, Lord, when that time may come, when that person may stand up in the middle of a restaurant where we're eating or come into a school where we're gathered or in the middle of a Bible study where we've accepted them. We never know when we may have the chance to stand up and give our lives for you. May the light of love shine through us in the dangerous times when that happens and in the everyday times when that happens and we have the chance to share a word of love. Bless us all, Lord, and bless this country and bless this church and others like her as we find our way forward in the strange and crazy culture we find ourselves in. If there's someone here, Lord, who's lost and temporarily been blinded, We invite them to come and just let us know that they're seeking to follow you. If there's someone here, Lord, who is a follower of yours but is trying to do it on their own, let them know they don't have to try and do it alone. They can do it with us. Let them respond, Lord, if they need to, as we stand and pray, as we sing this closing song. All in the name of our Jesus. Amen.